Good morning. This is attorney Vincent Davis, and you're on the radio with Get Your Kids Back Now. It's Saturday, 8 a.m., October the 8th, 2016. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary perk, a secondary to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning. We're going to be talking this morning about uh, suing social workers. And before we get into that topic, I want to remind people that is there that there is a historic case that's in the middle of trial uh, right now in downtown Los Angeles, on the Los Angeles Superior Court. I believe it's Department 89 on the fifth floor. The name of the case is Duval versus the County of Los Angeles, and it involves a woman who lost her child through the juvenile dependency court process. She actually had a trial. She lost the trial in juvenile court. And when they closed the case, they sent the case to family law court, where where it's my understanding, she continued to lose her bout or her uh, fight to get her child back uh, in her court to at least have monitored visitation. I believe that currently she does have visitation with her child twice a week um, for and they're monitored visits for a few hours, um, and this is going on apparently for some years. The reason why this case is so historic, in my opinion, is that lawyers, especially lawyers like me, um, usually didn't take cases uh, and represent people against social workers if they had not gotten their children back. In this case, Ms. Duval never got her child back. And uh, to this day, even as this lawsuit is going on, uh, has monitored visitations with her child. Um, the case was taken by an attorney um, who is one of the, I will call one of the gurus in this area, civil rights gurus against social workers and against counties, uh, uh, Mr. Sean McMillan. Mr. McMillan is based in San Diego, uh, where his office is, but it's my understanding and from what I've seen and heard, he represents people all over the state of California. And um, he took this case, and um, I got a chance to talk to him. Uh, I think it was on the first day of trial. They had a half a day of trial, and I showed up late at about 1.30, and uh, he was there sitting outside the courtroom by himself. He told me that the case had been finished for the day. They just did a half day on the very first day of trial. And he told me the hours of preparation that he had spent in putting this case together. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, Sean, how did you guys get past something called summary judgment? You see, one of the things that the county would always do and what I naturally thought um, the county would do is they would make a motion to throw your case out based on something called collateral estoppel. Now, collateral estoppel is a um, legal term, 
And it means basically that if you lost in one judicial form, like children's court, you could not bring it up again in another case because it, the issues about your guilt or your liability had already been decided. So I wanted to know how Ms. Duval, who lost in children's court, also lost in family law court, how could she be suing social workers? And John told, told me something that I did not know. I don't think a lot of lawyers knew this. There are, well, I knew there were exceptions to um, collateral estoppel. But the exception that apparently Sean and his trial team relied on was something called judicial deception. So in other words, if you did win in the earlier case, if the social workers did win in the earlier case, but it was based upon false or fraudulent evidence, that collateral estoppel wouldn't apply and that you as a wronged parent could still proceed to jury trial in front of a, a judge who's doing a civil rights case. Apparently, in the case of Duval versus the county, the judge in that case determined that the exception of judicial deception could or did apply. And therefore, Ms. Duval had the right to have her trial in court based upon her civil rights being violated by the county and by the social workers, and that, that this question was going to be left up to a jury of 12 people. It's my understanding they're in the middle or a little bit past the halfway point in the trial right now. But I did get a chance to see some of the opening uh, days of the trial. Um, I rearranged my schedule so I could go down there and watch uh, this historic event unfold. And the the jury, I think, is from what I've seen, I haven't been there recently, but when the days I was there, the jury was very interested in what had happened to this woman. Um, I had to have, I've had the opportunity to meet the plaintiff, Ms. Duval, on a couple of you know occasions. Uh, and she seems like a very nice lady, very fine lady. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, how could this lady not have her child or, or how could this lady be on supervised visits even? You know, I've never met the father, so I don't know if he's the better parent or not, but how could you still be putting this lady on? I've been a lawyer for almost 30 years. I've been, I've been doing juvenile dependency for the majority of those years, I think over 25 or 26 of those years, and I've met a lot of people. I've represented a lot of parents. And, you know, sometimes there are issues with some parents, but I've kind of gotten a sense where I can, you know, when I meet you and talk to you, I can kind of size up in my own mind. And I'm not always right, always right, but I can size up in my mind whether you are going to be a danger or a risk to your child. And let me tell you, I do not get that feeling from Ms. Duval at all. What I get is a sense that something has gone seriously haywire in her case or went haywire in her juvenile case that was continued on in the family law case. And this is the first time, and I think Mr. McMillan told the jury that this is the first time that someone like the jury and this judge is going to hear all of the evidence. They're going to see 
how the social workers perhaps were not truthful, perhaps exaggerated some evidence, perhaps how Ms. Duvall uh, didn't get uh, the best representation. You know, a lot of stars, uh, representation in the juvenile court, so a lot of stars had to align to put her in this situation. And um, that case is playing out right now in the Los Angeles Superior Court at 111 North Hill Street. There are, um, the case is open to the public. It's one of, it's a case in one of the big, what they call long cause uh, courtrooms. And you can go and you can uh, watch uh, this trial as it unfolds. And it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing to see a jury trial in progress because it's really showing our system of justice in action. And uh, the county is being represented by a very fine uh, uh, defense uh, firm out of, I think, Pasadena. They defend the county in a lot of cases like these. And it's uh, really, um, for me, an amazing thing to see such high quality representation on both sides, uh, trying to get to the truth of what actually happened with Ms. Duvall. Um, from what I've seen about the case, I, I predict that the Ms. Duvall and her team, that they are going to win. And I think it's going to send a significant message to the county, or at least I hope it sends a significant message to the county and to social workers and to the county board of supervisors that you have to be accountable. You can't do business the way you've been doing business. And you have to be accountable. You have to be honest. You have to be truthful. Uh, when uh, working on these juvenile dependency cases. Now, I said that the uh, topic of suing social workers was going to be something that we were going to discuss, and I'm going to get back to that. But I had gotten several emails during the week uh, from listeners, and um, a couple of people wanted to talk about different hearings and uh, what they should do and how they should strategize in these hearings. So the first thing I want to I want to talk about, though, is um, when when your child is detained out of your custody, the most important thing is that your child should be placed with friendly relatives. And I try to give an example. Um, if you have a criminal case and you're being arrested and you're in jail. Whether you fight your case from while you're in custody or while you're out on bail makes a significant difference. Um, when you're out of custody, you can assist your attorney, you can meet with your attorney, you can help with the investigation, help in the defense of your case. When you're in uh, custody and you're in jail and you're not out on bail, um, it's less likely for you to assist in your case. And this is my opinion. Well, when your child is in foster care or an unfriendly relative, that's like being in jail. When the child is with a friendly foster parent, excuse me, a friendly relative, um, it's like you're being bailed out of jail. And significantly, the leverages change from when your child is in foster care versus when your child is with a friendly relative. It significantly changes. One of the big changes is is that when you're in when the child's in foster care, you have very limited visitation, and um, 
something that goes on almost in every county that I've practiced in, in California, and I've practiced in several counties in, in uh, California, LA, Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, San Diego, Ventura, uh, San Francisco, Shasta County, um, San Joaquin County. And, and these cases, it seems like everyone's got this rote order that you have, you know, maybe one to two to three hours per week visitation. If you think about it, no matter what you've done uh, to your child or uh, haven't done, and, you know, sometimes they take your child because you're a risk to your child because you had a fight with your spouse and your child wasn't even involved, but they take the child anyway. Um, and I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. That's a whole other thing to be discussed. But when they take your child away and stick the child in the foster, uh, and you can only visit uh, three times a week for a couple of hours each time, sometimes it's one hour each time. You know, in some counties, give you one hour, minimum one hour visits per, time, per week. That's a significant blow to the child. Forget the parent. That's a significant blow to the child from going to living with their parents or their parent to only seeing the child or the child only seeing the parent one or two times a week, let's say three times a week. In my mind, it doesn't matter. That's not visitation. That's not something I think the law, you know, uh, anticipated. And I think that um, we easily, easily uh, detain these children and place them in foster children, uh, foster care, just as an aside. Part of my practice now, um, but it used to be a larger part of my practice in the past, I represented foster parents who were accused of abuse. Yes, foster parents abused foster children. And you know what? Those cases aren't done in the juvenile dependency court. So those judges in juvenile dependency court, they don't, probably they don't know what happens in foster care. And um, I've even represented a, a foster parent who was accused of causing the death of a foster child. I've represented foster parents who who um, were accused of physical and sexual abuse of a foster child. So when we send these children to foster placement, foster placement, it's not the you know the safe haven that everyone thinks it is. So. Also, when the child is placed with a relative that the child knows, um, in my mind, there's an easier way to visit. I'm involved in a case uh, not too long ago where the child was placed with my client's aunt. So the child was placed with the great maternal aunt. Well, in foster care, she was getting three visits per week, one hour apiece. In when the child was placed with the aunt, the mother could go over the aunt's house and spend the day every day with the with the child because the aunt who was friendly wanted to make sure that the child uh, and the relationship between the mother and, and the child was maintained you know um, especially when these children are babies uh, and they're placed in foster care the parents and the child are losing a significant amount of bonding time significant and, they're, and, and when they don't get to see their parents, they change. Um, I have another case where the woman um, lost her children for about mm, five or six months. 
And when the ch- when the youngest child came back, she told me the youngest child was about three years old. She told me, Mr. Davis, this this is a different child, and this child had gone through life, had gone through some experiences, some good, maybe some bad, but the child had changed significantly. My client, who was the mother, was only seeing the child two to three times a week, two to three hours at a time, and that wasn't enough to maintain that bond for this child during this important time in the child's life. child was about three years old. So when we place these children you know, with foster parents, good things don't always happen. Good things don't always happen. And, and, and in that particular case, the child was placed in foster care because of domestic violence between the mother and father, but the mother and father didn't even live together. Nothing had ever happened to the child uh, or any of the children. Now, could there have been something happening? Yes, and domestic violence is a serious thing in our society, and it is serious to children. But are we really weighing and balancing the good and the bad of placing children in foster care in different situations? But I digress. Let me get back to what we were really talking about, and that was a placement with relatives. So it's very important that the children be placed with relatives. Now, if the child is placed in foster care, the first thing that you need to do is you need to write down a list. Okay, I'm going to give you a strategy that I use and that my office uses routinely. You're going to make a list of 25 names. You're going to write down every relative that could possibly take the child. It doesn't matter where they live. Let me repeat that. It doesn't matter where they live. They could live in your county. They could live out of your county. They could live in another state. They could live in another country. So if a social worker ever tells you, oh, we can't place the child with that relative because that child lives in another county, or that relative lives in another county or another state or another country, they are not being truthful with you. And I've had many people tell me, many relatives, many parents, oh, you know, we have a case in LA County, but I have a relative in uh, Sacramento. Social worker tells them, no, the child can't be placed there. That's not true. That's not the law. In the United States, there is something called the Interstate Compact. And there's something called, that's an agreement between states. There is something called an international compact agreement between countries, and there's something called an intra-state compact, an agreement between the counties within the state. And what these agreements say is that if a child is placed in foster care and there are relatives that don't live in the county where the case is going on, there's a procedure to place these children outside of the county. Yes. So let me give you an example. I had a case in San Bernardino client lived in San Bernardino. Child was taken away from mother in San Bernardino. I found relatives, or we found relatives in Venezuela. Yes, the country of Venezuela, who flew up to San Bernardino County to take custody of the children. And they were honest. They said, we're going to stay here for about a month, but we're going back to Venezuela, and we want to take the kids back. Well, the whole argument about whether that happened while that was going on, the judge decided, without me even requesting it, 
and place the child or the children back with the mother in San Bernardino. So in my opinion, in a lot of cases, social workers want to keep the child in the county where the case is going on. Because in my opinion, this is a big money-making operation for the counties. And the money follows the child. So if you send a kid or child out of San Bernardino County to live in L.A. or to live in Venezuela, San Bernardino is going to lose a significant amount of that money uh, to take care of that child. So remember, the money follows the child. So you make a list of 25 relatives. You give them their names, address, telephone numbers, emails, and uh, the relationship of the child, and you give that to your attorney, and you email it to the social worker. By law, the social worker is supposed to investigate each and every one of those placements. That's a lot of work, a lot of work. So by law, you're already creating a lot of work that the social worker doesn't like to do or doesn't have time to do. I take that back. I think they like to do it. I just don't think they have the time to do it. And I think in a lot of cases, they're under, they're overworked and underpaid. So if you give them a list of 25 people to investigate, um, you know, that, that cousin who lived around the corner from you, who the social worker didn't want to place the child with because that cousin lived too close, all of a sudden becomes the social worker's prime selection to place the child with. So the other thing you have to do is you Google JV285 in California. It's a form. It's a form for a relative to fill out. I think it's two pages, a form that you fill out, check the boxes, fill in some blanks, and you file that with the court. And make sure you get what's called a stamped conform copy. Because once that's filed with the court, then the judge and all the attorneys are notified and the social worker is notified about this relative who wants to do something with the child, like have the child placed with them, has to be investigated and the judge knows about it. Because sometimes you'll send that list of 25 people to the social worker, and sometimes the social worker won't do anything. Judge doesn't know anything about it. So in order to get your names of relatives in front of the judge, you must file that JV-285 for each relative. Does it take time and work for you to do all of this? Yes, but it's such an important strategic move that you have to make. Sometimes a child is placed with a relative and that relative doesn't want to adopt, wants to see the parent get the child back. That's a significant impact on the case because if that child was placed with a foster parent, they may be trying to fast track an adoption. There are many other strategic reasons that you want to have the child placed with a relative. And, um, you know, maybe at a different time that we can, we can talk about this. We're reaching the halfway point in the show and um, I'm going to start taking some calls. The first call I'm going to take is from uh, area code 805, 805 ending in 05. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vincent Davis. Good morning.
Good morning. Are you there? Okay. Are you talking to me? And me? Yes, I am. You're. Yes, oh, I, am. I didn't. I. I didn't. Um. I didn't know. I'm sorry. Good you're, morning. You're Eric. Good morning. You're area code eight oh five, right? Yes. Yes. Your your phone number is zero five, right? Yes. 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 I was busy. I okay, was sleeping. So I'm sorry. On, um, no good morning, Mr. You're Davis. You're on live. Did you have okay. a, a question my, or a story? Yeah, my issue is with my my grandkids that were sent out of state, and. Um, I'm wondering how visitation is supposed to take place if they're sent out of state. I've only seen them once since they've, since they've left. It's been a month now. I've seen them once. I don't know when they're coming back. I can only speak to them once a week on the phone. And um, they are 6 and 10 years old. Okay, well, let me ask you a couple preliminary questions first, may I? Okay. So how long have the kids been in the juvenile system? It'll be a year next month. Okay. And who are they placed with out of state? My sister. Okay. So she's the great aunt of the children? Yes. Now, is she, do you and your sister get along? Or you, is she a friendly relative? Um, I have no relationship with this sister. We're 10 years apart, never had a relationship with her. She never even knew um, my six-year-old grandson until he went to her house um, in November of last year for a visit for Thanksgiving. She had barely met him then. Um, Now she took custody of him um, in July. Why, you know, as a grandmother, you're considered one of the people that have priority for placement. Um, Why weren't the children placed with you? They were taken away from me. I had custody of them and they were removed from me. Uh, Were they removed from you based upon allegations of something you did or the parents did? Um, Something that they say I did. Okay. And were you appointed or did you have, did you hire an attorney? I had a court appointed attorney. Okay. Were you the guardian of the children? Yes, I was. The legal guardian? Okay. Yes. Um, Did they offer you, did they offer you something called family reunification services? Yes, they did. And did you participate in that? Yes. Have they terminated your family reunification services? No, they have not. Okay. Well, one of the things to stop a placement outside the state or outside of your county is if you are having family reunification services and you um, object to the placement of the child outside of the state, Um, That's one way to stop the children from being placed in another state where you can't visit them. Are you, um, when is your, when was your last court date and when is your next court date? 
My next court date is in December, and the last court date was in July, right before okay. they left. So have you? Okay, have you been participating in the Family Reunification Services plan? Yes. Yes. Okay, are you are you significant or successfully completing in it? Yes. Okay, so what what's going to happen at the next hearing? It's something called a 366.21E hearing, and you could look that up under the Welfare and Institutions Code. You could just Google WIC 366.21E. Just Google that, and you'll read that on the next court date. The children are supposed to be returned to you if the social worker can't prove that you're still a detriment to the children. Now, if you don't or haven't successfully completed the reunification plan, that is evidence that you are a detriment. So my first question would be, or my first piece of advice was, you wanna make sure that you find out what the judge ordered you to do. And the only way you can do that is by going to look at the minute orders in the file and do those exact things and make sure that all of your counselors or your parenting instructors or whoever writes a letter or gives you a certificate of a completion that, hey, I, this lady has done everything. She's done great. Um, and once you have that information and that evidence, the so, it's going to be hard for the social workers to say that um, the children can't be returned from you, returned to you. Now, at the stage of your case, I want you to really pay attention to this. It's not going to be an issue, although the social worker will try to make this an issue, that the kids are doing great with your sister. That's not an issue. The only issue is, is whether you're a detriment to the children. So are you, mm -hmm. um, would you harm them or hurt them if they were returned to you? Okay. So you got to make that clear because a lot of social workers, um, play like or they really don't know um, what the standards are supposed to be used at each part of the case. And they're just doing social work. They're there to re, you know, save the world and do what's best for these kids. And that's not the actual the legal test. There's actual legal tests at each stage of the proceeding. And for your next test or your next proceeding, the test is, are you a detriment? And if you've done everything in the family reunification plan, um, you shouldn't be able to be found a detriment. I hope that helps answer some of your questions. And if you want to get the kids back into California, back into your county, you should speak to your court-appointed attorney or hire your own attorney and have the motion made because it's hard for reunification to take place when you're not visiting the kids. That's my point. That's my point. Yeah. Yeah, by, de then, by definition, by definition, the reunification services that you're supposed to be offered is supposed to be regular and consistent visitation uh, with the children. So if you if you didn't agree for the children to be placed outside of the state where you can't visit them, they basically have taken your reunification services away from you. And I would yes. definitely talk to my attorney, email to email my attorney, and, and request them to make a motion to have those kids brought back because you didn't agree to have the children placed outside the state. Mm 
and I hope you didn't agree, and I hope your attorney no, I objected not. to it. Yeah, when they um, when they were doing that case. So I hope that answers your question. Um, I have another question about. I have two other children that are um, my own children that were placed in the system, and my daughter they placed her on medication without my consent, without even notifying me that she's on medication. She's the one that let me know that she was on medication, but the social workers never let me know, and um, I'm not happy with it. I was not, I asked the social worker, could I go to this? They were going to have a meeting, whether or not they were going to put her on medication. I asked to go to that meeting. He told me I was not allowed to be there. Oh, that's so I want to know how true that is. That's false? Uh, well, he told, yeah, that's false. If they're your children and they're being given psychotropic medication, there's actually supposed to be notice to you and so that you can object to the psychotropic medication. Um, I was involved, I still am involved in a case where a lady um, was trying to get her granddaughter back and, and because of what I will call fraud and collusion by social workers in retaliation against this grandmother. Um, it took me like almost over a year to get this child back to the grandmother. And when we got the child back, um, uh, we learned that the child was prescribed psychotropic medication. And then when we got the child back, the grandmother took the child to a couple of doctors on her own. And those doctors said, this child doesn't need psychotropic medication. And I concluded, and I don't know if this is true, but I concluded that they put the child on psychotropic medication so that the foster mother could get more money for the child. See, when you have a child ah. in, foster, uh, in foster care and you put them on psychotropic medication, it does a couple of things. It um, basically makes them zombies where they don't give you any trouble like a normal child. And it also mm -hmm. gives you more money per month as a foster parent when you have one of these quote-unquote now special needs children who needs psychotropic medication. So, you know, you know, does this happen in every case? No, but, you know, it's those incentives. Imagine you're a foster parent. You have no bond with this child psychologically, emotionally, or physically, and you don't want this little six-year-old girl running around your house like a normal kid. So what do you do? You get her some psychotropic medication so she just stays in her room and she stays quiet. Oh, and by the way, you get a few more uh, bucks per month to take care of the child. Uh, because she's, quote, special needs. So, yeah, there's supposed to be some type of notice and opportunity. Uh, you have not lost your rights to your children, okay? Based upon mm -hmm. what you've told me, you haven't lost your rights. You could lose your rights, but you haven't lost them based upon what you told me. And when they start giving medication, none, you're supposed to be notified and you're supposed to have an opportunity to be heard. Now, I can tell you in almost every county that I've been in, does that ever happen? No. It's supposed to happen. In Los Angeles County, it was a big deal. It used to happen all the time. You know, they'd give you these psychotropic medication uh, requests and notices. Um, but I've been noticing as the years have gone by, they've stopped doing it. And I don't know why they stopped doing it. Maybe, you know, it's, it cuts out the amount of work, the amount of paperwork, and, you know, that type of thing. I don't know why they've really stopped doing it. Um, I, I was on a court not too long ago, but one of the judges um, was treating that request uh, or that information 
very seriously and was on, it appeared to be kind of upset that she didn't know um, this child was going to be put on, or was put on psychotropic medication. You know, it's a really big deal uh, to put a child on psychotropic medication, especially when there was no um, previous diagnosis uh, for the psychotropic medication. So, you know, it depends on the judge, depends on the county. But the answer to your question is, yes, you do have a right. Yes, you can object. Yes, you can get second opinions. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, in a lot of places um, aren't going to want to listen to you or they're going to cringe if you bring it up. Because I think it mm -hmm. highlights one of, one of the weaknesses in our system. I noticed that you have an 805 area code. Does that mean you live in Ventura County? Yes, it does. Okay. So your case is in Ventura County? Yes. Okay. Um, in my opinion, Ventura County is a hard place for to practice juvenile dependency. Um, uh, in my opinion, everything everything seems to be uh, to the social worker. Um, I could say that for a lot of judges in, in counties, in my opinion. Um, but it's uh, a tough place. Uh, they only have, I think one juvenile dependency courtroom uh, in that courthouse that does juvenile dependency in all the cases in Ventura, which is, you know, relatively speaking, a small county, are done by that those same group of that same judge. and But they do rotate the judges out, but by that same judge, by that same group of attorneys that work in that system. So I don't know who your attorney is, um, but I remember uh, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago I was there and I was uh, doing a trial and everyone was aghast that I was doing a trial you know that I was actually going to try to defend my client uh, by having a trial and it was just you know kind of a gave me kind of a weird feeling mm -hmm. uh, it's difficult I, I I don't really like to take cases in Ventura it's just you know um, just not a place that I appreciate going and I only go there when people you know just really try to talk me into it um, you know it, it seems like sometimes you know I, I've gone back in time or something um, you know I'm trying to do a case with uh, modern laws and you know modern rights and it seems as if uh, you know I, I'm, I'm having a different agenda than the people in the courtroom Anyway, I, I hope I answered those. I hope I answered those questions with you for you. Um, I wish you good luck. You know, what one of the things that you should do is that you should talk to your court-appointed attorney, write him or her an email. Um, you know about uh, what's going to come up because this next hearing coming up is going to be very important for you in terms of getting your children back. Um, and if you want to talk to me, you can talk to me. Um, I'm just starting a new program because, you know, uh, people call me from all over California and I can't represent everybody in California. You know, I'm based, you know, I live in Southern California and if you want me to do a case up in Shasta County, I, I mean, I can do it, but, you know, it's just a lot of extra cost. So what I've started doing is I've started giving uh, Skype and phone uh, and in person for some people, they, they contact me and they give me information on their case 
and I give them an hour, hour and a half consultation about what they need to do and how they can talk to their attorney. And in some cases, I've actually helped them find local attorneys who will do you know, what I suggest. Because I get a lot of people telling me, oh, my court-appointed attorney is not going to do that and blah, 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 this and that. And instead of arguing with the court-appointed attorney, I try to help them find another attorney in the area who's going to try to implement a strategy that, you know, that I've uh, set forth from them on paper um, after reviewing the minute orders and the reports. So that's something you might want to consider calling me about. If you have a pen, I'll give you my office number. Go ahead. I'm ready. It's 888-888-6582. And um, you can call me at the office and uh, make an appointment to speak with me. And we can talk about that if you want me to take a look at your case and give you a second opinion. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call, ma'am. Have a good day. So the next call I'm going to take is from area code 562, ending in 48. Good morning, Mr. Davis. How are you today? Yes, I'm I, uh, How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you to you and your team and your help. I appreciate it. I'm listening to the stories about the children being placed uh, long distance, far away, that's kind of what happened to me. It wasn't a different state, but my daughter was taken and she was placed two hours away from me. The social worker did promise the caregiver that you will be able to adopt this child due to the circumstances. So it just kind of made friction when I did my visits. I did 178 visits to uh, this two hour trip to Silmar for myself to visit with my daughter. And it's, you know, she was taken at three weeks old. That's a bonding time. And so to sit there in a restaurant and have some lady call my, call herself mommy to my daughter, was just heart-wrenching. I was going through a lot uh, without all that. And I never said nothing to her. I continuously asked the social worker, I would love for my daughter to be placed with friendly family members. My mom and my sister, two separate families, both went and got life scanned and fingerprinted and everything worked out okay. And the social worker just kept promising me, well, we don't want to rock the boat at this point. You're doing good. And, uh, you know, she's going to be getting returned home real soon. So this went on for 13 months. My daughter suffered with rashes. Um, She cried, had nightmares. A lot was going on with her. And the rashes are from not bathing and also from not changing her diapers often enough. Uh, People never had any experience, zero experience with children. I have a pretty good-sized family, and everybody's got children. I'm a father of four myself. So everything she learned was on the Internet. I went to pick my daughter up one time and had to change her diaper. And the lady said, well, um, it was 10 o'clock. She said, I just changed her at 9.30. And I said, okay. So I raced to the diaper table. She had a diaper table. By the way, as far as I'm concerned, I had my own diaper bags. I had baby food. I had everything. Every time I went to visit my daughter, I would leave clothes. I would leave. And the lady said, oh, you don't have to do that. We're paying 
for everything. You're getting paid to take care of your daughter. I, I know, but I still feel the responsibility. So I went ahead and changed my daughter. And the lady said, the box says they're good for 12 hours. And I said, okay, do you want to sit in a dirty diaper for 12 hours? But anyway, that's just one thing. There were many things going on with these people. And uh, the lady started having little temper tantrums when I got my unmonitored visits. Uh, I talked to her 20 minutes, and she was just screaming and yelling and angry at me. And she goes, you know I can't have children. And I said, that doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm tired of you calling my daughter your daughter. She's not your daughter. She's my daughter. And I said, um, like I said, I talked to her about 20 minutes to calm her down. I made a phone call to the social worker, and I said, you need to get this lady some help or she needs some help. I'm not a counselor. I don't want to have to deal with her anger every time I go to pick up my daughter. So when this first started, the unmonitored visits, of course, it's two hours up to where I had to go pick my daughter up, drive back for two hours. She was with me for the day, drive back up for two hours, and then drive back home for two hours. I was doing eight hours of driving for like a month straight. Then he started doing the overnight visits, which was a little bit easier. So um, it seems like they do try to place them a distance. Uh, I don't know if they want to make sure that you work for it. Uh, they claim there was nobody around this area any closer that could take my daughter and take care of her until I got through the court process. I know that the judge does frown if you do not make your visits. If you do not make adequate visits, they gave me three visits a week for three hours each time. The lady that's the foster care, she only wanted to do two visits a week for two hours at a time. And at that time, you know, I didn't want to try and rub any feathers with anybody. I just wanted to get my daughter back, do my visits. Uh, I was grateful to, to have those visits because they were not going to give me any visits. And when I sat down with the adoption person, they said, you're not getting your daughter back. And that really made me feel bad. The whole time, I never got mad at anyone. I never, uh, like, questioned them in a rude way. I just felt, you know what, in my mind, I'll do what I have to to get my daughter home. I had a private attorney. Well, first, I had a, a public defender. I got to stop myself. I always go in public pretender, a public defender with the courts, and then I See, that was not working out too well, so I hired a private attorney. And now that I look back, I believe that attorney was kind of dragging the case out because it, it went for quite a long time, pretty close to 24 months, I believe. And then, you know, I found your team, and you guys got on board and got her back the same day we went to court. I'm so grateful of that. And, again, I was looking on your website, Child Welfare Act, Section 309, Social worker must do their due diligence to place the child with friendly family members. And they did not. When I downloaded that whole application, I took it over and I put it right in his face. And I said, in a nice way, didn't get angry or nothing. I want my daughter moved immediately to either my mom's or my sister's. It took about five days and she came home. And probably... Maybe three months after that, you guys went to court for me, and we won victory. It is a struggle and a fight, and people got to be patient. They really need to do their homework, and somebody needs to talk to you and find out what their rights actually are. I know all along the way, my rights and my daughter's rights were violated. 
I did not make that an issue. My whole concern was to get my daughter home. I thought, get her home, and I'll deal, deal with the rest of it later. So anyway, that's my story, and I appreciate everything. I, do you have any questions for me? or? No, no. I want to thank you for calling, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you, Mr. Davis. You guys have a great day, okay? Thank you. Well, that that was a call from a prior client. Um, I didn't realize that his child had been um, out of his custody for that long when we took over the case. Um, uh, maybe I did know that at the time, but just listening to him today, I realized that he was a prior client and that we did help him get his child back. Uh, his child was on his way, on the way on her way to being adopted by the foster parent, and um, it seemed in his case that the social workers had just decided that was going to be the best thing for this little girl. And like I was telling the previous caller, nobody was focusing on what the law was and that the child had to be returned to him if there wasn't any evidence against him. In that case, they were just trying to say that the child would be better off with the foster parent. And that's not the law. you know. Um, but that's what a lot of social workers who are trying to re-engineer the world into a perfect place, you know, what they thought. Um, and this particular client has sent me pictures over the weeks and months that after the child got back to him, and it's such a pleasure. It gives me such a pleasure, and people in my office a pleasure to see him back with his daughter after being separated for so many months and months. I think it was a couple of years almost uh, without his child. Anyway, getting back to our topic and the uh, ensuing uh, social workers. We didn't really talk about the day. I was talking about placement with children, uh, with relatives. Um, but, you know, one of the things that uh, can happen if the social worker doesn't do that, that might be a basis to sue the social worker. Now, one of the things that you have to decide at the very beginning of your case before you sue the social worker is do you want to sue the social worker under state and or federal law? Um, because they're they're handled differently. If you want to uh, sue the social worker under state law and under the state constitution, you have to make a claim, a governmental tort claim, uh, which is about two, three, four pages long. Uh, you have to file it out, fill it out, and 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 file it with the clerk of the county, not the clerk of the court, the clerk of the county that you live in, and you can usually get a copy of the claim form by just Googling it for your county. I know on the Los Angeles County website, uh, you can find the claim form and just fill it out as to the county of Los Angeles and as to their employees, the social workers. And, you know, right there on the on the website, it'll tell you where you should file it and uh, in Los Angeles County, you file it at the Hall of Administration, which is in downtown Los Angeles. So that's a precursor to filing uh, a state lawsuit. So you have to file the claim. The claim, the claim 
puts the social workers and the county on notice uh, that you're going to uh, sue them. And under state law, they have the right then to investigate it themselves and to decide uh, whether they're going to settle with you without you filing a lawsuit. Now, this December, I will have been practicing 30 years, and in all of my 30 years, I have never, ever seen a claim form be accepted and paid off without filing a lawsuit. Now, that's not to say that it didn't happen or it hasn't happened in my 30 years as a lawyer. I've just never heard about it. And so um, most claims, or all claims that I've been involved with or heard about are denied. And then once they send you the denial letter, then you have permission to file the lawsuit against the county with your state claims. Federal claims, however, you do not have to file the governmental tort claim. And um, all you have to do is file your case uh, in federal court or in state court um, to pursue your governmental tort claim, uh, excuse me, to pursue your federal claims. If you do file a case in state court, that has governmental uh, federal claims, the defendants could remove or take the case and have it sent to the federal court. And you'd be uh, prosecuting your case in federal court instead of state court. There is a significant amount of difference between suing uh, the social workers in state court versus suing the social workers in federal court. It in my opinion, it depends on the facts and circumstances of your case on whether you should file in state court or federal court or allege federal claims in state court because of the danger of the case being removed. Um, in May, late May, I finished uh, what was a big case for our client in our office, a case against the county and I think four social workers. Uh, it was a case that we filed in federal court um, and there's a pro, there's pros and cons about being in federal court for both uh, families and the county. And uh, it just so happened that in federal court, this case uh, turned out to be of a great, um, I think a great assistance to us uh, with the federal laws and the federal rules of evidence, federal rules of civil procedure. And uh, this particular federal judge who we were in front of, who I didn't know at the time, but I found out later was a a Obama uh, appointee. Needless to say, um, she wasn't uh, conservative and uh, she uh, was making sure that uh, by some of her rulings that uh, we weren't taken advantage by the county. The county had some great lawyers and uh, you know, they every chance they got, they were trying to wear us out uh, in terms of motions and strategies and you know uh, I have to say they're very very good lawyers um, and uh, you know in these types of cases uh, when you sue a county and when you sue uh, social workers please understand that those social workers in those counties are going to use county money and go get the best defense lawyers they can so no matter what they did or didn't do or what you allege they're going to be trying to the best way possible to defeat you and not let you even get into court in front of a jury. Um, so, you know, I come across a lot of people that 
you know, have quote unquote great cases. And what they don't understand is, you know, there's two sides to every case. Uh, the social workers aren't just going to lay back and say, hey, I'm going to give you millions of dollars. No, they're going to fight you and they're going to try to use technicalities and every legal trick they can to uh, bounce you out of court or to lessen the, the value of your case. So please know that whenever you get involved in a lawsuit, especially against a government, governmental entity, to entity like the county, any county in California, you're going to have to work and you're going to have to work hard to win your case. So those are the preliminary things you have to do. Generally, you have to file a lawsuit. You have to file the governmental tort claim regarding your state causes of action within uh, six months of the event. And uh, then once you get the denial, I think you have six months or 12 months, I forget which it is, to file the actual lawsuit uh, in court. If you're just going on your federal claims, you have 12 months from the date of the incident when it accrues um, to file the lawsuit. You assume you have uh, tw 24 months to file the lawsuit, so you have two years. Now, the trick for filing a tort claim and the lawsuit in state court or the lawsuit in federal court, sometimes the trick is... Um, when you file uh, or, or when the time accrues. So, for example, if I walk out on the street today and I get run over by a car, I clearly have two years to bring that case. But in cases where your civil rights are being violated, you know, um, they may be violated one day, but, you know, your child is taken from you on day one and you don't get the child back until 180 days later. Um, but you're being damaged every day that you don't have your child. So it becomes, well, when does your um, claim accrue? And there can be arguments made on either side. In that case that I was telling you about, um, we filed the case nine days, no, no, excuse me, three days before the statute of limitations ran. And uh, you know the client had come to me very late in the game. And it was stamped, uh, received, but it wasn't actually filed until nine days later. And one of the arguments that the defense made with a very straight face, they lost the argument, was, well, since he filed it with the clerk before the uh, statute ran, that the clerk didn't actually file it until nine days after the statute ran, that we blew the statute of limitations and the case should be thrown out. Like is you know one of the most absurd arguments I've ever heard, but with a straight face, and they were going to try to bounce us out of court any way they can. Uh, we're running out of time. Um, we'll continue with this topic of suing social workers in our next show. But don't forget, if you're not registered to vote, please register. Please vote. If you are complaining about the judges and the juvenile judges in your county, know that you state court judges are subject to re-elections and elections, so your vote counts. If you don't like a judge, get people together. Vote that particular judge out of office so that a new judge can be put in. If you don't like the legislature and the laws that are in California, vote to change your legislators. I am developing a website where we can organize together on a state and national level. More to talk about that next week. 
Goodbye and have a good weekend. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.